Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. We're doing a simulcast here this, this afternoon, and we don't do this very often here at One Chapel, but we do it from time to time as a way to try to get us always on the kind of the same page and kind of have a strategic input at different times as well for you to be able to meet different one of our campus pastors, different pastors here at One Chapel. And so welcome, everybody. Thanks for having me. It's great to be all together on this day. And for if I haven't met you yet, again, my name is Russ Walker, and I am the campus pastor at One Chapel Lake Travis. And we've been doing a series through all of our campuses where we're talking about this idea of at the table. Before we jump into it, we're going to pray here together. If you would, just would you grab a hold of the person's hand beside you? Let's take a moment to pray for each other. Also, Kyle and Lake Travis, grab a hold of the person's hand beside you. Let's pray together here. Pray for the people on your left and your right. Father, we thank you for the people who are surrounding us. And whether we know them or whether we just met them, Lord, we're grateful for that you brought them here. We know that you have a purpose. You have a plan for them. And so, Father, we just pray your blessing upon the people who are around us. Father, if they need wisdom in what's going on in their life, Lord, we release your wisdom into their life, into their situation. If they need healing in their bodies, Lord, we release healing to come from the top of their head to the soles of their feet. We release that healing in Jesus' name. And Lord, if they need some sort of provision, Lord, if they're looking for uh, an open door, a job situation, a housing situation, Lord, we pray that the windows of heaven would be opened up, Lord, favor would be upon their lives. Lord, we ask for your, your blessing, your provision, your healing, your wisdom to really mark these people on our left and our right today. We speak and declare blessing over them in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 9. That's where we're going to start here. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 10. It says, Months later, the apostles returned from their ministry tour and told Jesus all the wonders and the miracles that they had witnessed. Jesus, wanting to be alone with the twelve, quietly slipped away with them toward Bethsaida. But the crowds soon found out about it and took off after him. When they caught up with Jesus, he graciously welcomed them all, taught them more about God's kingdom realm, and healed all who were sick. As the day wore on, the twelve came to Jesus and told him, it's getting late. You should send the crowds away to the surrounding villages and farms to get something to eat and to find shelter for the night. There's nothing to eat here in the middle of nowhere. Jesus responded, you have food to feed them. They replied, all we have are these five small loaves of bread and two dried fish. Do you really expect us to go buy food for all these people? There are nearly 5,000 men here with women and children besides. He told his disciples, have them all sit down in groups of 50 each. After everyone was seated, Jesus took the five loaves and two fish. And gazing into the heavenly realm, he gave thanks for the food. Then in the presence of his disciples, he broke off pieces of bread and fish and kept giving more to each disciple to give to the crowd it was multiplying before their eyes. As I mentioned, we've been doing a series that we've been calling At the Table. And the theme verse for this series is Luke chapter 7, verse 34, which says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
The Son of Man came eating and drinking. We've been talking about over this last couple of weeks that how this, I think, just kind of goes over our heads, eating and drinking. I mean, what in the world does that have to do with anything? I mean, why is this even noteworthy? And we've been talking about how one of the major reasons why this idea of eating and drinking just tends to not impact us so much is because meals meant way more back then in Jesus's culture than they do to us here today. I, te I think today we've lost the power and the impact that meals have in our lives. But the reality is meals, they have the power to bring people together, but they also have the power to pull people apart. And we've talked about that. And if you've missed any of these series, I'd ask you to just go back and listen to the podcast of some of these things. We've been talking in detail about some of these ideas. For Jesus, though, this practice of eating and drinking wasn't just a side point to what he was doing. It was really central to everything that he did. As a matter of fact, Luke 19, verse 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So that was his mission. This is why he came to planet Earth, was to seek and to save the lost. But Luke 7, verse 34 says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. We've talked about how if there's a method to how he did it, it would be this. This was his methodology. This is how he accomplished his mission. In a culture that was hostile, in a culture that was at arm's length toward Jesus, where people really didn't want to receive what he was saying. When he was talking about who God is and how to have a relation, people were kind of at arm's length towards him. And so the way that Jesus walked people into the kingdom of God was literally one meal at a time. And I just think this is such an important lesson for every single one of us because we live in now what is called a post-Christian culture. This is something we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. I won't go into detail what that actually means, but the essence of it is that it's really this reactionary moment that we're having, that people have towards Christianity. And so the question then becomes, so how do we invite people into this amazing life of following Jesus? And really it is amazing things, what God does in our life. But how do we do this? How do we invite people into follow this amazing life of following Jesus in a post-Christian culture that's hostile, where it's not PC, where you feel weird and awkward about talking about God and, and your faith? How do we actually do this? Well, that's why we're looking at what Jesus did because what we're looking at is all the different times that he sat at a table and ate with people. This is really interesting because almost every time that he would do this, he would sit with people who were really what, what culture was considered untouchable. Those who were marginalized, those in the religious culture of the day were seen as unclean. Right. People who they thought God would never want to go after. People who had failed miserably in their life. These were the people that Jesus sat and would eat a meal with to the point that Jesus started having this reputation that he was a glutton, that he was, he was a drunkard. And the reason why he had this reputation was because this was the type of people he was surrounding himself with. These are the type of people he would eat with. These, these untouchables, these, these quote-unquote sinners, these tax collectors, these, these prostitutes. And so we get here to Luke chapter 9, and this meal's a little bit different, because this one, he's not just eating with one person, he's eating with a mass of people, almost at least people consider over 15,000 people, there were 5,000 men plus women and children. So this was a, a mass, a group of people that Jesus sits and has a meal with, and it's at this meal that we not only see God's provision for the masses of people, but we also see how this amazing miracle flowed through the hands of one little boy and 12 disciples. Look at this again in verse 15. It says, after everyone was seated, 
Jesus took the five loaves and two fish. And gazing into the heavenly realm, he gave thanks for the food. Then in the presence of his disciples, he broke out pieces of bread and fish and kept giving more to each disciple to give to the crowd. It was multiplying before their eyes. Now I want you to notice four things that Jesus does here at this meal sitting. The first thing is, number one, he took what was given to him. He took what was given to him. And I just think this is so important for every single one of us because no matter how small... No matter how significant you think what you have is to give to Jesus, if left in our hands, it remains small, everybody. If left in our hands, it remains insignificant. If left in our hands, it remains little, but put into the hands of God, God does extraordinary things with that little. Number two, he gave thanks. He gave thanks. In other words, in other words he blessed it. And I just think this is something that's it's, it's important, again, for us to understand because that little that we give, God, when God takes it, he multiplies it in extraordinary and miraculous ways, which is the, should be motivation for us to give it, right? right? And then number three, he broke it. He broke it. In other words, Jesus breaks what it is that we give him. Now, I think most of us, this is where we want to say, I, I, I want to pass, number three. Let's go on to number four, right? I mean, how many like to be broken, <laughs> doesn't sound very good, right? We don't like that, that idea of being broken. But this is something I've seen, this principle I've seen over and over and over again, that before the making, there was always the breaking. It always is. You'll see this over and over and over. Before the making, what God's trying to make you to become, there's always a break. And the reason for this is because it's in your brokenness that we can actually see where the, where the power and the provision comes from. Before you're broken, it just kind of seems about you, right? But it's in the brokenness that we see where it actually comes from. It comes from God, which brings us to number four, and that is he gave it. He gave it. In other words, Jesus takes what we give him, he blesses it, he multiplies it, he breaks it, and then he gives back what we bring to him for the sake of others. And listen, everybody, when Jesus gives, it's not just through addition, it's through exponential multiplication. This is how we all, he always does. This is who he is. And just like Jesus, part of our purpose is to be poured out for others. That's part of your purpose, everybody. That's part of your purpose is to be poured out to others. And it's in this giving of your life that you actually become miraculous provision for those who are around you. And so four words, taken, blessed, broken, given. Can we say those four words together here, everybody? Taken, blessed, broken, given. Come on, one chapel, Kyle, one chapel, Lake Travis. Let's all say it together. Here we go. Taken, blessed, broken, given. It's an illustration of who we are, who we're called to be, and what we're, and what we're called to do with the world around us. Now, I should, we shared this in the first service that at Lake Travis um, Lisa Kirby has been helping me with all the kind of creative elements that we've been doing um, at each of our campuses. We've been doing tables just like this at all of our campuses. And if you were here the first week of the series, we, we talked about the meal at the Last Supper. And it was a meal, right? We tend to, in our American Christianity, we've reduced it to a little piece of bread and a little bit of juice, but the original, it was a meal. It was a supper. And so we illustrated that at Lake Travis, and we had a, a sanctuary to be able to do it. And so we, we stretched tables all from one side to the other side, and Lisa decorated it. It had mounds of, of loaves of bread, huge clumps of grapes, and pitchers of, of grape juice. 
so that when we came to the communion time, people had to come and it was like a meal, tear off a big piece of bread, pour some juice, serve each other. So Lisa's been doing that. And in doing this, she had to go to HEB to buy a whole bunch of stuff. And she started having these encounters at HEB that be, have become kind of illustrations of everything we've talked about. So I've asked her to come and share some of these stories. Put your hands together for Miss Lisa. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, no kidding. The Lord just teed me up so good on this. And there's actually more than I'm going to tell you today. But let me just tell you this one part. So I'm at the HEB, and I'm wheeling my cart around full of grape juice and bread. And I run into this friend of mine uh, from Catalyst, and uh, we start chatting. And then her daughter, who's in, in the cart, says to me, she goes, we're having cornflakes for supper. And I was like, oh, cornflakes, wow, fun. And then I look at my friend. And I say, oh, so your husband's out of town and you're having cornflakes for supper because she's a cooker. And um, she said, no, actually, he's not been getting paid. And so she tells me a little bit about what's going on. And I say, let me buy your groceries. And she's like, no, no, it's fine. I, I got it. And I'm like, no, really, let me, let me buy your groceries. And um, she goes, no, I, you know, I, I got eggs on sale and I'm making egg sandwiches. And she had it all, you know, worked out because she's real careful like that. And um, so I just kind of eased, let it go for a minute, and we chatted about some more stuff. And then a third time, I said to her, no, really, I, I want to buy your groceries. And then I said, I was like, I was like, body of Christ, it's what we do. And when I said that, she said, okay. And it was just like this, all of a sudden, it was like this serendipitous, sacred moment where I realized that the body of Christ was both in my cart and in my person, or in my cart and in my heart, right? This, this cart full of the representation of his love for us, and my person in that moment full of the representation of his love for her. And I realized he had arranged this moment for her. She loves Jesus and she has a relationship with him that is real and intimate, but I also know that she struggles at times, you know, trusting God for provision. And so he orchestrated that moment so that she would know that he loves her. And because I am part of the body of Christ on the face of the earth, I got to be the representation of his love for her in that moment. And I got to be the body of Christ at the HEB. And it only cost me 86 bucks. <laughs> you know? And I think that's the way it is most of the time. Just 86 bucks, an offer of care on an ordinary day at the HEB. He has yet to uh, ask me for, like, martyrdom. Like, there's been no, no actual, like, torture on a cross or spilling of my blood or mocking or humiliation required of me to fulfill my role as part of the body of Christ. Just a little bit of care. But I miss these opportunities all the time, so I'm not talking about those too. <laughs> so um, actually the next day, I was back at the HEB, and um, 
I, I was getting more loaves of bread. And, you know, I went to the checkout where, you know, they have those warm ones that smell really good and they have them all bagged up for you. Well, there was only one. So I went to the bakery and I saw there was a whole bunch of them there on a rack behind the counter just waiting to be bagged up. And I said to the, the one gal that was standing there uh, in, in the bakery, working in the bakery, I said, so I need eight of those loaves bagged up. And she goes, okay. She goes, can you just give me like five minutes? And um, I was like, um, no, actually, I, I really, I just need them now or I just, I just need to go. And so honestly, I was just being, I mean, I was just being selfish. I was all in my middle-class white girl entitled <laughs> body and blood of Lisa Kirby, selfish self. And I didn't want to stand there for five more minutes because all my shopping was done and I was ready to go. I was the customer. And I was older than her and more forceful in personality and presence. And I just subtly powered up on her in that moment and to get my way. And she complied. And this is what the body and blood of Lisa Kirby looks like. My agenda, my needs attended to first. And it's a stark contrast with Philippians 2, which says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look, come on, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's a far cry from, listen to this one, in your relationships with each other, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself a servant. And being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I couldn't give this girl five minutes. I didn't even need to wave the banner of Jesus over her or proclaim to her that I would grant her the five minutes in the name of Jesus. I just needed to be kind to be the body of Christ in that moment to somebody. But instead, I was in my flesh. But Jesus actually does live in me. So as I wheeled my cart away full of the representation of his love for us, <laughs> I felt his sadness <laughs> at the interaction. And so I apologized to Jesus as I was rolling through the frozen food aisle, but I still have enough pride in me that I didn't go back and apologize to the girl. It wasn't really, it wasn't until I was at the checkout and I realized that I had lost my wallet and I had to retrace my steps all around the grocery store and ended back up at the bakery. And there she was. But there was something about the desperation that I felt with my wallet on the loose that humbled me somehow. And so I just went up to her and I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for not giving you five minutes for that bread. And she just looked blankly at me and said, okay. And I said, will you forgive me? 
and there was something about the look on her face that really made me feel like maybe no one has ever said that to her before. But she said, I guess so. <laughs> sort of un unconvincingly. <laughs> so I just gave her a sheepish smile and then departed to go search for my wallet some more, which, by the way, was in my basket. <laughs> but I didn't know that for another hour and until after I had called somebody to bring me a credit card so I could pay for the groceries. Thank you, Taylor Sheely, wherever you are. God bless you. Anyway, I had been selfish. But because of the broken body and poured out blood of Jesus that I remember every time I come to the communion table, I knew that he forgave me quickly, completely. And this was helpful. Because right after that, someone else's selfishness caused me pain. And there was something about the juxtaposition there of my selfishness, Jesus' forgiveness of my selfishness, and this other person's selfishness that made it a little bit easier for me to forgive them. I mean, how can I not forgive when I've been forgiven? Of everything, all the time. If we eat of the body of Jesus, we drink of the blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, then our bellies and our bodies and our lives can be full enough of him to extend that forgiveness to others. And this is part of being the broken body of Jesus, is extending forgiveness. Looking at people, even in the places where they have caused us pain, and saying, like Jesus did when he was nailed to a cross in pain, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive me. When I'm being selfish, I, most of the time I don't really know what I'm doing. And thank you, Lord, for all the million ways that you forgive me. Help me, Father to forgive other people just as quickly and thoroughly as you do me. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Amen. Come on, everybody. This is exactly what we're talking about. And so this rhythm of taken, blessed, broken, given, it's a, it's a rhythm. It's a rhythm that I think God is calling every single one of us to. It's not just something that we're supposed to do on Sunday at church, but it's something that we're called to every single day of our lives in every situation, even when you're just shopping at HEB. We've been doing this series, and so much of this series, I think, has been created to kind of stir up your imagination, to stir up your imagination of what might be possible, to stir up your imagination of how God wants to use you, how God, even through your common meal and through your home and your apartment, that, that God can take that little to open in people's hearts to the provision that he has for them. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, she says it this way. She said, those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. I love that last line. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. And so I want you to think about this. And I want you to try to imagine the what if. 
Because what if we were to reimagine our homes and our apartments, not as a castle to hide in, but as an outpost for the kingdom of God? What if? What if we were to reimagine our tables as this tangible expression of love and service to, the, to others? What if? What if we were to imagine, reimagine our meals as a setting for strangers to become neighbors and neighbors to become brothers and sisters? What if? I want you to start thinking about that little that God has put in your hand. And I think for so many of us, when it comes to home, we tend to think of home as a retreat, right? As a refuge, a place to hide from the world, a place to get away from the difficulty of the world around us. And so it's a place to eat a place to drink, a place to sleep, a place to binge watch Netflix, right? For so many of us, I think that's how we think about home. And it's been my experience that the vast majority of Christians don't really see their homes any different from those who are not Christians. We all tend to see it the same way. We tend to see our homes as this retreat. Now, I think for most Christians, we tend to get this idea, this missional call that Jesus has given us, that we're to go out, we're to go out and make a difference, make disciples, to work, to bleed for the cause of Christ, to pray for the kingdom of God to come further into our cities. As it is in heaven, God, come further here in this Austin region. I think most Christians understand that missional call. But I think for most of us, we see this as something that happens outside of our home instead of something that happens in and through our home. And I think this is the challenge that God is putting his finger on for every single one of us. John Tyson, who leads a church plant in Hell's Kitchen in New York City, he has this book called Sacred Roots, and he says it this way. He says, what would our love look like if it showed up dozens of times a week in small but profound ways? Meals cooked, prayers prayed, songs sung, scriptures studied, games played, parties thrown, tears shed, reconciliation practice resources given. What if we stopped attending community groups and became groups of communities? What if our homes stop being the places that we hide from the world, but havens to which the world comes for healing? Great questions, right? And so let me ask you a very specific question here this afternoon. And that is, do you see your home or your apartment as yours? Is that how you see your home? Is that how you see your apartment? Or do you actually see it as a gift that's been given to you by the Father? That you are a steward of this gift that he's put into your hands. In other words, do you see your home as the little that could be taken, blessed, broken, and given where God could provide extraordinarily to those around you? Francis Schaeffer who was one of the 20th century's kind of premier intellectuals, he wanted to create this place where people could come and ask questions about Jesus and to tangibly experience a community of Jesus in flesh and blood. And so along with his wife, um, Edith, he created what he called these Labri homes in Switzerland. Labri is the French word for the shelter. And these Labri homes are really now have spread all over the world. And, and so in describing these Labri homes and how to start these in whatever community you're in, he said, he said this. He says, don't start with a big program. Don't suddenly think you can just add to your church budget and begin. Start personally and start in your home. I dare you. 
I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. Do what I'm going to suggest. Begin by opening your home for community. There's no place in God's world where there are no people who will come share a home as long as it is a real home. I love that. I dare you. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. And so this afternoon, if I may, I dare you. I dare you to dream a little bit of what might be possible with your little. Hey, One Chapel Kyle, One Chapel Lake Travis, I dare you to dream what might be possible with your little. I dare, I dare all of us to begin to dream. I dare you to dream what might be possible if you recapture your home and your table as an outpost of God's hospitality. Now, I want to give you here this afternoon just a brief, kind of brief history of hospitality because I think it's really important that we see the legacy of how God has used Christians over the past 2,000 years to radically influence the culture around us and to provide for others in extraordinary ways when we just simply give him a little. The etymology for the words, the, the English words hospital, hospice, um, hotel, hostel, all come from the exact same root word of hospitality. All those words come from that same, that same form. And there's a reason for this, because in the ancient world, there weren't any hospitals. In the ancient world, there weren't any hotels. There, there were some inns, but they were really very rare, and uh, they're actually considered very dangerous. As well, travel was slow and dangerous. It really wasn't part of the ancient world. But then the Roman Empire came into existence. And the Roman Empire was able to create something that no empire had been able to create, create before that time, and that was a vast road system. No empire had been able to do it before that time. And so in the first, in the first, for the first time in human history, people were able to start traveling literally all around the world because of the Roman Empire. But yet there was still no hotel system to accommodate these travelers. And so what the followers of Jesus Christ did in the first and second and third centuries is they picked up on this emerging cultural moment and this acute need that was happening in society. And they stepped in to fill this void with hospitality. For example, in around 400 AD, Chrysostom, who was the bishop of Constantinople, he had this charge to his church, this, his church, and he said this, make for yourself a guest chamber in your own house. Set up a bed there. Set up a table there and a candlestick, you know, like a lamp from Ikea, right, for us. <laughs> Have a room to which Christ may come. Say, this is Christ's room. This room is set apart for him. Isn't it interesting? This practice became known as the Christ room. And as recently as last century, it's what inspired Dorothy Day and the, the, the Catholic worker movement to create these, these really infamous, infamous houses of hospitality. I'm saying all this to say that the earlier followers of Jesus Christ, they made hospitality in this expression of the Christ room a high value to the point that the word got out all across the Roman Empire. And so if you were traveling and you came to a city, the first thing you would do is ask, where are the followers of Jesus? Because you needed some place to stay. And the followers of Jesus provided those rooms. Christians were famous all over the Roman Empire for their hospitality. For example, Emperor Julian, who was not at all a follower of Jesus, he was actually extremely hostile towards Christianity and persecuted Christians all over the Roman Empire. He writes this now famous letter to a friend of his. And in this letter, he's complaining about these atheists 
who were what Christians were called back then because they did not believe or worship the Roman gods. So he's complaining to his friend about these atheists and that, that their hospitality was winning over the entire Roman Empire. And so he calls on his friend to get all the, the, Hel the Hellenistic priests together and to start studying how the Christians were doing this hospitality thing so that they could replicate it in order to bring the Roman Empire back into paganism. We all know it didn't work because Christianity continued to flourish and to spread all over the Roman Empire in 370 A.D., Bishop Basil of Caesarea, he founded the very first hospital, hospital as a result of a severe famine. It was just kind of this all-in-one stop sort of place for the sick, the poor, the, tra the traveler. And, and when he died at his eulogy, they, they talked about his hospital as being a storehouse of piety. This is all part of the heritage of, of hospitality. Soon after this, um, the, hus the, the, the hospitality for the traveler, the hospital for the sick all moved into monasteries. And it's interesting because so many of us, when you think of monastery, most of us tend to think of the same, and that is this place where people were, would run to to hide in order to get away from the big bad world. That's how they ended. But when monasteries were started, they were actually outposts on the bleeding edge of the Roman Empire set up for the very purpose of pushing the kingdom of God out past where they had hid been before. So in it to Ireland, in it to Scotland, into Spain, and really all over the world. And as a result, then entire towns were built up around these monasteries because these monasteries were really the access point for social justice and hospitality and cultural renewal and innovation and technology. It's where writing was done. Almost all forms of writing were done inside the monasteries. It's where the water wheel was invented. And listen, this is ready. It's where beer was invented. <laughs> Great inventions were discovered inside of monasteries. And so monasteries were the centers of cultural influence as well as being a place for spiritual disciplines and prayer and teaching and fasting. And so these monasteries were these cultural influencers, these centers for over a thousand years. It wasn't until the 14th and 15th century that cities in Europe began to take over the running of hospitals and Far more recently, where welfare and social justice became really the responsibility of our federal government. My point in all of this is to, is, to, is to let you know that so many of the institutions that we've come to rely on for human flourishing from hospital to hotel, they all started in the homes and tables of followers of Jesus Christ. That's where it all started. Taken. Blessed. Broken given. This is what we are called to do. It's what Jesus did and what he passed on to every single one of us. And I'm sharing all this here today to try to stir up your imagination, to serve your imagination of what is possible, because who knows what could come from your little, your home, your apartment, your table. I mean, imagine an entire Austin region from San Marcos to Liberty Hill, from Bastrop to, to Marble Falls. Imagine this entire Austin region where every follower of Jesus Christ is practicing radically ordinary hospitality. Imagine if your home or your apartment becomes the community center for your neighborhood. What if? What if? And so I want you to think about that here this afternoon. Because what little do you have that you can give to Jesus? This story, this meal here in Luke chapter 9, that becomes the provision 
for over 15,000 people all started with just five loaves and two fish and one little boy and 12 disciples. That's where it started. And so what do you have right now? What has God put in your hands? What is your little? What bread do you have? What fish do you have taken, blessed, broken, given? If you would, I want you to just close your eyes, if you would, please. Because I want you to let just the Holy Spirit to speak to you specifically now. To speak to you specifically of what he's actually put into your hands. So I think so often we can think, what can I do? My life's insignificant. I don't have anything. And as I was praying for this moment, as I was praying for you, as I was praying for each of our campus, I just kept hearing just the voice of the Lord say these words, that through seemingly insignificant people in seemingly insignificant areas, with seemingly insignificant resources, God said, I will do the extraordinary. I will do the extraordinary. If we just keep that little in our hands, it remains small. It remains insignificant. It, it remains little. But when we give that, when we let it go, and we let God bless it, when we let God break it, then he gives back in exponentially multiplied ways. And so, Father, I pray for every single one of us here in One Chapel Austin, One Chapel Kyle, One Chapel Lake Travis. I pray for every single one of us that the imagination of the Holy Spirit to dream of what is possible I just, I just heard the voice of God say this for you that somebody's dreams have been stolen somebody took your dream and it's just been crumpled. It's been shredded. And, you, and you're thinking, what can I do? This is not what I thought was going to happen. And I just heard the voice of the Holy Spirit speak to you and say that even out of the death of a dream, new life can come. What you think is not possible, if you'll just give it, if you'll let it go, God will resurrect new life. Huh. And it's multiplied life. Father, would you just speak directly into every single person here? Father, highlight that little that's in their hands. Highlight that thing maybe that we're holding on to, that we can let go of. Hi highlight the possibility of how you can use us to transform our schools and our neighborhoods in this entire Austin region. God, would you highlight that for us? And Lord, would we be people of godly hospitality? Would we be your body broken, given, blessed, whether we're at HEB, in our schoolrooms, in our classrooms, in our workplaces, that we would walk it out 
with your power working in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11.30. See you next time.